Okay. All right, everybody, mute yourself. We'll get this started, and I'll open us in prayer, and we will uh, discuss. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this uh, space to be together. Thank you for the community of faith you've given to us, your church, your body. Lord, help us tonight um, to love each other well, to listen to your voice, and to have the, uh, the things in mind that are in your mind, to have uh, this, this heart about us. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Uh, okay, friends. So I could uh, talk about one, any aspect of this message for a long time, but it may not be exactly what we need to chat about today. Uh, so as is our custom, I'm going to give a two minute summary. Then I'd love to hear what grabbed you, what struck you, what questions do you have? What was helpful, what was confusing, etc. And we'll use that as our launching pad into whatever we need to talk about. Okay. Um, the good news proclamation on Sunday was about how, um, God is love and his love is what, uh, is what governs his justice. Uh, rather than his justice governing his love. And that his love is, uh, his judgment is in love. And so we have to hear and see and interpret, um, or I propose that we hear and see and interpret God's justice through his love, not the other way around. Um, we talked a little bit about how um, Jesus came to uh, love the heaven into us, not scare the hell out of us, and that we need to maybe have our imaginations formed not so much by medieval uh, poems, but rather uh, more by uh, really paying attention to the scriptures and dealing with what they say and then being agnostic about what they don't say. It's a little more than I said on Sunday, but that's, that's kind of where we're at. So we have lots to discuss, perhaps, on what do the scriptures say and the rest of that. But let's just jump in where you, uh, where you, hang on a second, Ben is uh, messaging me. All right, booted and... Okay. Um, what was grabbing you? I mean, we could take this any direction. And if you've got no questions or thoughts, I can obviously talk for a while. But what, what struck you, what grabbed you about the message on Sunday? Matt, since you called back into the call, I just want to ask, are you recording this now like you wanted to? I am recording this like I wanted to. I okay. quit out of it, came back in, and it let me record. The first Perfect. time I, w I wasn't the host, now I am. Okay, great. That yep. was just an admin thing I wanted to. <laughs> great. Yeah. So, as I listened to the sermon, and I tried to listen to it again today, um, am I to understand that you are not interpreting the scriptures to mean that hell is a place 
as much as it is a, con a, a condition. Mm. A, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I think that's probably the best way to describe it, Melody. I don't know. I think our imagination for hell being this place under the ground, you know, uh, Hades or Sheol where there's fire, uh, then I, 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 I'm pretty sure it's not that. And where did Jesus go? Yeah, he went to the dead. He descended into Hades. And Which the way, is not hell? Well, that's a good question, right? That's a good question. So um, in the creed, when we say Jesus Christ descended to the dead or descended, uh, some of them say descended into hell, but it's, uh, I believe it's a translation of Hades. And Hades is the Greek understanding of the place of where the dead go. It's like the grave. Mm -hmm. And it's not quite what we're talking about. It's not the place of eternal judgment. It's the place that, that dead go before the eternal judgment. So Jesus goes and proclaims, you know, this is part of uh, three days in the tomb. Jesus goes and raids hell or raids Hades, if you will, of uh, preaches the gospel down there apparently right which changes sort of changes everything in in certain theological systems so i if, if hell is a place i don't know where it is melody i'm i'm more confident so if hell is a place it's also a condition if hell is a condition it doesn't necessarily need to be a place uh and so I'm more confident that hell is a condition than a place. Although, can I interject? Sure. Um, this is really interesting. I actually didn't think about any of these questions, so it's really interesting to me. But um, so just to build off the resurrection of the body, like we obviously really value the body. So I don't know how any like human existence apart from body, it seems like we're undermining the positive side of that. I don't know how we could be humans and not be placed, but mm -hmm. I, I mean, I do, I think your emphasis on the condition part is lacking obviously. So like mm -hmm. within culture. So I think that's really important. Anyway, I just, that was just the thought I had when you said that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what I mean by, so when I say I'm agnostic about whether hell's a place, what I'm not saying is that the resurrection of the dead only happens for the righteous. I'm pretty sure we all raised from the dead. Um, meaning, um, meaning that whatever existence we have is embodied. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is where I think there's four, maybe this would be good to talk about these four main sort of conceptions of what hell is. The first is the one that I tried to narrate with the white bear justice park uh, allegory, which is uh, what is typically known as eternal conscious torment popularized by, um, I, I think probably Augustine was the first one to really name it 
and flush it out. And then Aquinas picked it up. Uh, Dante, John Milton, Jonathan Edwards, and, and most of the Reformation theologians uh, talk about this. Uh, and I, I don't feel like I need to say much about that because I feel like that's the thing that we've all inherited. Is that a, is that a okay assumption to make? Um, I think, but that's one we're most familiar with. Um, another option is what's known as, and I forget the Greek word, but this is what Origen suggested, Gregory of Nyssa, Nyssa suggested. And it's, it's, the Greek word means the redemption of all things, the restoration of all things. It's known as Christian universalism. Um, or unconditional reconciliation. It's another word for it. Sometimes the word universalism gives people the heebie-jeebies. Um, most of the people that wrote uh, the Nicene Creed fall into this category. So this is not something that was uh, kind of um, way off in, uh, in the periphery or, or crazy people thought. This was fair. A lot of church fathers held to this. And this basically hold that Jesus died for all people, right? Savior of the whole world, and that every knee will bow, right? Uh, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is world. So the cross of Jesus is so powerful, so effective, that everyone and everything will be saved. That's the second option. We can talk about the issues that I have with that if you want, or questions you have with that. Third option is what's commonly referred to as uh, annihilation or uh, conditional immortality. And this is uh, held by theologians such as uh, John Stott, um, Tom Wright, and uh, others. Um, and this, this, this position or interpretation of all the biblical texts simply states that if we persist in our resistance of God's love, we simply cease to exist. So we, we can reject... God's love, and when we do that, we uh, we cut ourselves off from God, and thus, uh, because the only thing that holds us in existence is God's love, we we're destroyed. We cease to exist. Um, we lose the image of God by resisting Him. The fourth option, which is similar to the third, but is di different in a distinct in a distinct way, and this is why I'm sort of answering this question about is hell a place or not in a, in a dodgy way, Melody. Uh -huh. The fourth the fourth option is is that heaven and hell are the same place. <laughs> and I said this a little bit in the sermon Sunday, uh, but this is the position of the entire Eastern Orthodox Church, most of the church fathers including like John of Damascus, Isaac the Syrian. Uh, this is a position of modern Roman Catholic theologians, like the big important ones like Hans von Balthasar, Paul Rahner, um, Bart held to this, Torrance held to this. I think C.S. Lewis kind of held to this too. And this is that if a soul desires... Um, uh, what they want, so sin and selfishness for eternity, they only, uh, they get only uh, God as love. We only ever get God as love for eternity. But if a soul is committed to, if a person is committed to sin and selfishness, they experience God's love as torment. Um, 
So hell isn't necessarily from heaven, but it's a person from heaven. You guys, uh, I might have frozen up. Did I freeze up there a little bit? Yeah, you're kind of funny sounding. Do you guys? Yeah. Yeah, my internet connection is a bit. Let's see. Let's try it again. Am I sounding better yet? Yeah. It was just okay. Really in there. Feel so I'll just take that. So so this this position is that hell and heaven aren't distinct places, but um but that hell is a uh, person's response to heaven who doesn't want it. Um, so those are the four sort of dominant options in Christian history. And uh, I'm most intrigued at this. Uh, and the issue with, uh, I think, the first three options are that their scriptures, all the scriptures don't fit any of those categories. So you've got scriptures that seem to talk about torment forever. You have scriptures that seem to talk about destruction and being destroyed and ceasing to exist. And you have scriptures that seem to indicate everyone is going to be saved. Like you literally have scriptures that fit those three categories. Uh, and I think the fourth option makes the, I mean, this is where I am right now. I think the fourth option makes the best sense of the plurality and diversity of witnesses to what happens to those who uh, are eternally damned. But I could be wrong. So that's why I'm a bit like, I don't know if it's a distinct place from heaven or if it's the experience of heaven from the place of selfishness and sin. Does that make sense? And I'm, I'm not trying to be dodgy, but this is, how, this is how the Eastern Orthodox Church talks about it. This is how the modern Roman Catholic Church talks about it. This is how people like Karl Barth, Torrance, C.S. Lewis thought about it. There's a huge, huge swath of Christian tradition that thinks and talks about heaven and hell in this way. So, so can I ask a question or? Yeah. I don't, yeah. That's I, what we're doing here. I didn't want to interrupt. Yep. You, you used a phrase yesterday or Sunday during the sermon that you called a hopeful inclusionist. Do you remember that? Go for it again, Melody. Sorry. Oh, um, yeah, you kind of froze up on me. Um, you used a phrase called hopeful inclusionist yes. on Sunday? Yes, okay. I did. And that phrase, I've, I am familiar with that phrase. I was in a Presbyterian church for a while, and they used that terminology to refer to their um, response to what they believed was a particular doctrine of predestination, hmm. which in a nutshell, I, I would um, call it that their doctrine of the frozen chosen. Hmm. 
but they would put a little more religious language around that and basically say that they would interpret the scripture to mean that Jesus didn't die for everybody, that Jesus died for only those people who wanted God and that from the foundation of the world, God knew who was going to want him and respond to him. And so he, in, so he foreknew, he didn't just foreknow, meaning, you know, God knows everything, but that he actually predestined some to become sons and daughters and others mm-hmm. who were not predestined. Mm-hmm. But, but that those who were predestined that the Holy Spirit would so work in their lives that they couldn't help but respond to the wooing of the Holy Spirit and turn to Christ. Yes. And that the Holy Spirit, you know, the implication was that the Holy Spirit wasn't going to work like that in the lives of those who were not predestined to become sons and daughters. And so since nobody really knows, they would adopt a posture of hopeful inclusionist, meaning that as the church, our Mm. role is to um, be as missional as possible, be prayerful, and because we never know who the Holy Spirit is is wooing. Yes. So how does, how does that fit into any of those four models? And, and do you ascribe to that kind of theology? Yeah. Yeah. What you're describing is sort of the Calvinistic doctrine of double predestination that God (laughs) from uh, eternity has ordained some people to uh, perdition or punishment, and others to eternal life or uh, heaven. Um, and uh, without getting into the weeds on that, uh, that I, I don't think that's a good reading of Romans. I mean, most of it's from Romans chapter 11. And I don't think that's the most faithful way to read Romans chapter 11. Uh, and so that's not, that's not a doctrine we'll teach. Uh, that's not a doctrine we hold to. Um, I, I see God's omniscience and uh, foreknowing. I see his foreknowing uh, as honoring the agency and uh, will of people he loves. And so um, without getting into, yeah, without getting into too much on election and the God's choosing melody. Uh, that's not what I meant by hopeful inclusionist. I didn't mean God has his favorites and we can't, we can't know his favorites. And so we pray for everybody like everybody could be his favorites. That's, that's not what I mean by that. What I mean by hopeful inclusion is um, scripture describes God's desire that none would be lost, that all would be saved. I don't know how to pray without praying for that. So that's, that's the first thing. I, 
I don't know how to pray in a Christ-like way if I don't hope that all are saved. I, pres- I don't presume any are in terms of uh, that's not for me to decide or determine. So a hopeful inclusionist just means the posture is I trust God's love, that it's fair and just and effective and powerful. A friend of mine says this too about being a hopeful inclusionist. He says, Jesus is the savior of the world and he can save whoever he wants. And that phrase, um, it needs to do more work in me than it has. (laughs) But I really appreciate the point of that which it, it sort of decenters me from being the judge and jury of other people's salvation. Okay. Melody prayed the, the right prayer when she was 12. So she's in, but Matt, you know, Matt did X, Y, and Z and I've never heard him pray the prayer. So he's out like, that's where my heart wants to go. But a hopeful inclusionist posture says, God, your love is the most powerful thing in the universe. Jesus, you're the savior of the world. You can save whoever you want. I know you want to save everybody you want. So please save that God forsaken sinner, Matt. <laughs> that's what I mean by that phrase. That's what I mean by that. Um, if you have follow-up questions to that, Melody, we can get to that too. Andrea threw up a question here about the fourth option, which is heaven and hell, or uh, that hell is, is, the, is the experience of God's love for somebody who doesn't want it. Scripture seems to often focus on the violence of people against one another. How does that work when heaven and hell are an experience? Like there still is a physical separation, how you have mentioned the people outside of Jerusalem in the past. In other words, how do those who are resisting God not continue to contribute to suffering and oppression on those who aren't resisting God? Great question. It's a great question. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. I think every, every, here's what I do know, Andrea. Every image and articulation we have about the afterlife is, is metaphor. Is metaphor. Um, and so you've got, you know, you've got metaphors where like the new Jerusalem and, and, and the end of Revelation, right? It's this beautiful city. And they're, and they're all walls, right? Uh, and there is outside and inside. But then you have this picture, and this is from Isaiah. I don't know the exact address. But you have this picture. Uh, John tells us explicitly that the gates are not shut in the New Jerusalem. Which, if the people outside the New Jerusalem are the ones who are suffering, why aren't the gates shut? Right? Well, this is where, like, you know, Christian universalists will say, there's always a chance. Like you can always repent. Like the suffering will always have access to the new Jerusalem. You know, other people say that metaphor means something different. So there's all these pictures and images and it's hard to nail down exactly what it's going to look like. Um, Yeah. And then you ask this question about the day of judgment in that scenario. How do theologians deal with the day of judgment, which was also really dominant among the Jews? So it's not immediately apparent to me, Andrea, how the day of judgment would be in conflict or tension with 
that fourth option. Can, can you unpack that a bit, how you see maybe there being tension or conflict there? Um, I guess I'm probably importing some of the things that you deconstructed, which I thought was helpful. Uh, I guess it's just like, there seems maybe an implied finality that I was just assuming that I can rethink. That would be good. Um, mm -hmm. But just like the reconciling that happens. Um, especially because I'm thinking about like Jews who are being oppressed, right. That are hoping for liberation and writing of, you know, oppression and things like that. And the day of judgment being like the hope that God's going to set things right. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I just assume I, I, I mean, as I'm thinking, I'm processing this too, but um, there always felt like there was like a finality to it. And, but yeah, even as you asked that question, like, yeah, maybe there's not a finality to it then. Like there's maybe some change that happens in terms of suffering and pain, not being part of the experience of people who follow God, but it doesn't necessarily exclude like you were saying. Okay. So I don't think there's necessarily conflict there either. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it doesn't. So I need to read, I mean, I need to read a lot more up on it. I'm, I'm learning this stuff alongside you guys. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't. So the fourth option that I, that I named doesn't preclude a day of judgment. Like the day of judgment is, is real. Um, um, but the judgment is essentially God's love that you've resisted your whole life. Now you get it sort of unfiltered with unveiled faces, right? There's, there's like hashtag no filter. <laughs> like it's just full throttle God's love. And so the way that you resisted that in life and the person you've become because of that resistance now it's like exponentially worse, right? Um, now, Christian Universalists would say, no, it doesn't get worse. That love, uh, no one's able to resist it. So that the love is efficacious and powerful. Um, the issue there, the, the issue there that, that I would say I would have with that is that God seems to... Um, God seems to always work with, uh, good night, buddy. God seems to always work with people's agency. And I mean, some theologians call it free will. And I know that's fraught with it, difficulties, but God seems to choose to work in and with humans agency and decision-making and Christian universalism at some point, God, it seems like God overrides all that. There's no decision to make but saying yes to God, which seems to go against kind of all of salvation history, where we've always been able to say no to God. That makes sense. So that's kind of a leap. I know it's a little philosophical, but that's a big leap in my mind that leads me to like, I'm just not sure. Yeah, good question, Ryan. You want to ask this? Just you want to unmute and ask it? It's a great question. So in the fourth option, if heaven and hell are the same place, then it doesn't seem like there is an, an annihilation that happens. Um, but there's passages, um, a couple come to mind for me, that seem very much like there's an annihilation, like death and the demons and all that get destroyed in the yes. lake of fire. And so um, how, how do those two 
for the fourth option, how do they deal with those passages that talk about those things being done away with? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question, man. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of passages. I, we read one from Philippians three on Sunday about the people whose bellies are their gods and their end is destruction. So that, that word doesn't mean eternal torment. That word means you're, you're done. <laughs> like, and so um, I meant what I said, like, like Paul doesn't talk about hell, but he does talk about sort of conditional immort- immor- immortality. He does talk about um, some people will cease to exist. Uh, the di- so let me just say this real quick. The difference in the third and fourth option is that the annihilationists think that a human can resist God's love to the point that they lose the image of God. Eastern Orthodox has this doctrine of image and likeness. So humans, every human has the image. You can never lose the image uh, because God's, God's uh, being is love. And if you're in his created universe, you're, you're sustained by it. His like, the likeness of God is what you gain in Christ and what becomes renewed. Now, we don't have to go with Eastern Orthodox fully on that, but this is how they say you can't lose the image of God. Ergo, you cannot cease to exist because there's nowhere in God's cosmos where God's love isn't. So for them, it's just one people say, you can resist God's love to the point of non-existence. The other uh, Eastern Orthodox, the fourth option would say, you can resist God's love and that just makes your hell that much worse. (laughs) Right? But in terms of the fire imagery, this is really fascinating. Um, um, This is one of the things that I think the fourth option has a lot going for it. Because like, especially in Matthew's gospel, fire is a huge symbol and metaphor in Matthew's gospel. And fire is either purifying light or destroying darkness in Matthew's gospel. It's just fascinating. It either purifies or destroys. Now, what it destroys and what that, what that means and how that works, Ryan, I know this will be unsatisfying. I don't know. I wish I did. I don't know. Um, so, the, so for, but if for Eastern Orthodox, the fire of heaven is the fire of hell. Um, and I, again, it's intriguing to me. It holds it. I think it does have a way of explaining what you're asking. I'm just not able to articulate it very well um, or remember it. Great questions, you guys. This is really stimulating. <laughs> it's really great. Um, yeah. Yeah. You guys can jump in and talk. Um, if if uh, I know the text works well on Zoom, but if somebody's listening to this afterwards, they can't read the text. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, can I just say how refreshing it is to hear someone say, I don't know? Ditto. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great. Like, it really is.
Yeah, thanks. You know, one of the things that I take comfort in is that we're like being Anglican, we're a creedal faith. Like, so that, so that I don't need to say anything more than the creeds do. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. <laughs> the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Like that's, that's the faith that's been passed down through the apostles. Uh, the, the rest of this could be helpful to us if it releases us from things that aren't right, but we don't need to be dogmatic about it. I, I mean, I'm least convinced in eternal conscious torment. And if I'm wrong about that, so be it. So be it. Yeah. Um, so here's, here's Gregory of Nyssa describing this, okay? This is the illustration he uses. He says, um, this is Gregory of Nyssa. This is the guy who, you know, he's a big deal, this guy. He gives, he gives this picture on the difference between heaven and hell. If you have healthy eyes, you will experience the sun on a bright and clear day as wonderful and pleasant and beneficial. But if you have a diseased eye, you will now experience the same sunlight as something terrible, painful, and awful. You may even blame the sun for your anguish. Same sun, different responses to it. This is uh, Maximus the Confessor who's a seventh century monk of Constantinople. And he, he writes this, but this is the same metaphor that Origen, Irenaeus, Anthony the Great, and Ambrose of Milan used to. He says, God is the son of justice, as it is written, who shines rays of goodness on simply everyone. The soul develops according to its free will into either wax because of its love for God or into mud because of its love for matter. You can tell the Platonism here. Platonism. Uh, thus, just as by nature the mud is dried out by the sun and the wax is automatically softened, so also every soul which loves matter and the world and has fixed its mind far from God is hardened as mud according to its free will and by itself advances to its perdition, as did Pharaoh. However, every soul which loves God is softened as wax. And receiving divine impression and characters, it becomes the dwelling place of God and the spirit. So you see, this was a common way of thinking about judgment uh, by church fathers. And uh, yeah, those are two examples using uh, diseased eye and wax and mud. Yep, Andrea, let's hear your question about forgiveness. Um, well, I just, when you mentioned the hopeful inclusion during the sermon, so maybe kind of coming full circle to what Melody was saying, um, that just really resonated with me, like naming kind of, I guess I think how I've been wanting to approach it. And I was thinking a lot about how it's really profound that God chooses to forgive. And I was thinking about the story you all shared about from the podcast about the man who had like... Um, I don't know, like sexually assaulted or something, a woman. And then he had like this vision of Jesus telling him he forgave him and how the guy who led that, that exercise was kind of like, he could admit in himself, like, no, 
but like, I almost like this guy is so horrendous and what he's done is so horrendous. Like, I don't want God to forgive him. You know, like I want him to be punished, but then the guy himself had to like reassess, like, you know, no, this is like good. This is like God's goodness coming, you know? And I think it's really, I, I can feel that impulse in myself sometimes. And I definitely see it like throughout writing and people writing that like, no, people need to be punished because these things that they do are so horrible. And even like the Pharisees say that to Jesus too. I mean, that's like the parable of um, in Luke of the son, the, the prodigal son coming home, you know, like the older brother's like, well, wait a minute, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Like I'm the one who's faithful here. What's going on? And God's like, well, I can, you know, pretty much like I can choose to forgive who I want. And so, uh, yes. I just think that's another reason like it's easy to for us to have bought into kind of like that number, whichever option that has really taken hold like throughout church history, because we have this sense of like, but I want, I like, I want that kind of justice. But then God like reminds us like, you know, who's been forgiven the most. I'm getting like all tangled here, but you know, there's even that, uh, kind of like who loved the most, the one who's forgiven the most or whatever yes. um, with the woman in, in sin. So I just think like that forgiveness piece is really important. Yes. Yes, Andrea. Any, any other thoughts about this, you guys? Any, any thoughts about what Andrea just said? Um, th- this relates to what Daniel brought up in group me. Um, and I want to maybe read his question because it correlates exactly to what you're talking about. Uh, I think he says, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the idea of what retribution or repayment looks like in light of Romans 12, 19. I have to look it up cause I, have yet to memorize the entire book of Romans, unlike most of the rest of you. Uh, Twelve nineteen, where Jesus' followers are commanded not to avenge themselves, but to allow for God's wrath. Right. So let's read Romans twelve nineteen. Uh, <clears throat> let's back up here. Uh, This is verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. All right. What's going on here? Well, um, a couple things. One, uh, wrath is a metaphor and a concept. It's a metaphor of God's response to evil and sin. And it actually evolves a bit in scripture. I'm not sure I have time to go through all that. But um, the important thing to know about wrath is it did not exist in the Trinity before creation. This is what I mean by a secondary characteristic. Um, love did exist in the Trinity before creation. Primary characteristic. (laughs) Got it? So wrath is is something that uh, is a response of God to something that is resisting or opposing his love. So I want to suggest that 
the concept of wrath in scripture uh, is most fully understood as God's response at whatever opposes or resists his love. Now, there's a question in uh, what, is, what is the object of his, God's wrath? There are Christians who say the object of God's wrath are persons. So Ryan decides to drink and chew and go with girls who do. And he doesn't, I'm just going to use you, Ryan, because you're the least likely person to do this probably. Uh, and uh, <laughs> My grandpa's got you. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that, that God's wrath is kindled against Ryan. Um, again, I, I, I kind of I pivot to some Eastern Orthodox understandings of this um, because they see the object of God's wrath not on the person per se, but the problem. Uh, and a lot of them use the metaphor of uh, like a good surgeon if Ryan had a cancer, God wouldn't punish Ryan for the cancer, but the surgeon would cut out the cancer to save Ryan. So the surgeon's wrath is, is kindled against the cancer in order to save Ryan. So God is able to oppose the sin without opposing the person. God is able to oppose the problem without opposing the patient. Um, and this, this comports with Romans 1. The wrath of God has been revealed against sinners. No, against lawlessness, against unrighteousness, against sin. Right? This is Romans 1.18 and Romans 7, if you want to check that out. So... So then what does wrath do? Well, again, Romans 1, this is the same book we're in. Three times in Romans 1, God says, uh, Paul says that in God's wrath, what does he do? Smite them? No. Send them to hell? No. <laughs> he turns them over to what they want. You guys know this, right? This is, like, I could read it all, but for the sake of time. God's wrath is a turning over. Another way of saying it is a withdrawing from people so that they get what they want. So that the way that they're opposing God's love more fully, they have more, they're more fully attached to that. Um, so that's, that's a little bit about the object of wrath and how God's wrath is talked about in the book of Romans. Now let's keep reading Romans 12. Because it doesn't pivot the way maybe we would think. So Romans 12, uh, I will repay, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And then, and then, listen to this. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. This is Matthew 25 stuff here. For by doing this, you will keep burning coals on their head. Here's the image of fire. Purifying or punishing, depending upon how people respond to love. You see that? This image of burning coals on their head. 
For by doing this, you will keep burning coals in their head, which means bring conviction, right? This is a Old Testament metaphor, which means bring conviction. And then verse 21, do not overcome by evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul says, the vengeance of God is you loving them and them getting scorched by the love of God. Do you see that? Is there, am I making this up? Are you guys tracking with me? <laughs> Paul is holding this idea of the vengeance of God is your embodied love of them, your enemies, that burns them So that burns them, brings conviction, and this uh, coals, coals on the head is an opportunity of repentance. So it's restorative, the wrath is, and it's meted out through God's love being poured out ever more fully on them. Not returning evil for evil, but overcoming evil with good. Come on, people. I mean, this fits really well, I think, with this fourth option. Like the logic is at work here that the fire of God's love is going to be experienced as, you know, as, <laughs> as, as like wrath, as like opposing the sin that they're doing with love. That's the vengeance that Paul says. So he's quoting the Old Testament, yes? Vengeance is mine, I'll repay. But the Old Testament conceptualization of wrath has, has progressed, developed, moved because of the cross of Christ. Because, Andrea, you're right. Jesus from the cross doesn't say, oh, Father, in your glory, pour out all your wrath on me. He says, Father, forgive them. So I do think that wrath and retribution change, shift. The people who wrote the Old Testament had a predominant way of understanding vengeance and wrath. And then the people who wrote the New Testament after the cross, it's grown, shifted, matured. It's, it's uh, changed, maybe too strong of a word, but it's, it's, it's developed because of the cross. You know, if this is true, then this is much better news than I could have ever <laughs> imagined. Why? Um... I, I guess because there's so much grace and mercy in the picture that you're painting. Um, you know, you're making God 
out to be a whole lot more like Jesus than, <laughs> than I have kind of imagined him to be. And, and I know that Jesus is an expression of, I mean, I know all that up here. <laughs> and yet I think that if you look at my life, you would observe that what Melody really believes in her heart of hearts is that God isn't nearly as loving and merciful and gracious as Jesus. Yes. 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 Melody, you're not alone. These, these axioms you're going through in DNA group, uh, numero dos, I think, is God is like Jesus. And there's yeah. no unchristlikeness in him at all. Mm-hmm. This is this is huge for us. I mean, we either just we either just flatten out all of Scripture and try to try to uh, make the um, have it all sort of be sort of equal revelation, or we're scared to death of being Marcionites, where we just pick and choose and cut out the Old Testament and just take the parts we like. Right. And I, and I think a much more faithful way of interpreting Scripture the way Jesus did is using Jesus as our center, interpretive, hermeneutical key. You know, Jesus is what God has to say. God revealed himself to prophets long ago, but now, but now, Jesus has come. And it's a whole new ballgame. That's my paraphrase of Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Right? Paul says the same thing. I mean, they, 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 they look at God with, like through a, a glass dimly and veiled faces, but we with unveiled faces are beholding the image of God in the face of Christ. It's like scales have fallen off our eyes. Right? And so what does that mean? And how do we honor the inspiration and revelation of texts that do, you know, where, um, for instance, God is commanding the killing of babies. You know, and that's a, that's a, that's a tough question, but what you're naming, I think is right on that God is like Jesus. He's always been like Jesus. And we didn't always have Jesus to know that, but now we do. <laughs> and yet we still have the God that was revealed to us in the stories of the old Testament who annihilated entire towns of the enemy in order to give his chosen people a better view of the the dead sea or something you know <laughs> yes or something yeah the yeah. promised land yes right yeah that so what you're yeah what you're naming uh is a whole nother sermon series. I can hardly wait. <laughs> At the very least, a whole nother sermon series. But um, the people I've benefited the most from are those who start with the cross of Jesus as the fullest, deepest, most truest expression of what God is like, and then take the cross of Jesus back to those stories and say, how does the cross help me see the story differently? I don't, I don't know a better way through that question 
than to do that. It's a, a cruciform hermeneutic. The scandal of the cross needs to scandalize our reading of the Old Testament because it scandalizes everything. <laughs> and, and what you're describing, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to put, that's a, that's a fierce question. And it's a, I know people that have walked away from God because they can't answer that question. Melody. I have a, a new friend who is an atheist and he wants to engage me in these kinds of conversations and my telling him, I don't know to some of his questions is very unsatisfactory to him. Now, you know, he'll say, I'll grant you that, you know, you're, you're not arrogant and obnoxious like so many modern evangelicals. Um, and, and yet he finds that my, my, he finds fault with my faith because of the things, so many things that I don't know mm. and cannot explain to him. Yeah. Um, Sure. But, you know, when I listen, when I, you, know, I mean, you know, Paul talked about, you know, the sum of his life being preaching Christ crucified. I think of that when you talk about interpreting the whole Bible through the lens of the cross. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. But I'm not necessarily sure. I'd, I'd like it and I'd like an, a someday I'd like an example of how to do that with some of these really fierce, bloody, violent scenes in the well, Old Testament. I've, I can give you one <clears throat> person's attempt at this and it's a, uh, he's written 1800 pages on it. I wouldn't suggest plowing <laughs> it unless, you know, you're, it's no. not the pain of heart, but he, it's a, there's a popular version of his research and proposal. And I, I, I don't think it's an end point. I think it's a starting point on how to answer this question. So the okay. book is called Cross Vision. Cross Vision, okay. And it's written by a brilliant dude named Greg Boyd. B-O-Y-D. Yep, Cross okay. Vision. Okay. Again, I think it's a good starting point. I think he's rigorously trying to do what I just described. And in fact, he's one of the several, he's one of the several people I've learned this from. Um, I'm not persuaded by all his proposals, but his project is in the right direction. Um, let me just say something else too about retribution friends, because Daniel brought that up in his question. I didn't quite get, his question, uh, he also included, hang on a second, Group me is having to load up again here. He brought up First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians 1, 3 through 8, which is the man of lawlessness. Um, I'm not quite sure how that relates, but he brought up the question of retribution. And retribution is, um, is simply punishment inflicted on somebody for wrongdoing that they deserve. So retribution is tit for tat. Um, uh, retributive justice is kind of uh, seen in the lex talionis of the Old Testament, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Punishment fits the crime. 
Um, now, Lex Talionis in the Old Testament was a move from injustice to justice in the sense that, um, and you see this, uh, and I forget what it's called. I shouldn't bring things up that I haven't uh, thought through, but I think with my mouth and sometimes that just happens to me. There's um, retributive cycles of violent revenge killings still happen in certain um, cultures where um, you, you, get, you get in a car accident and you plow into somebody's sister and her brother then kills two of your uncles. And then those aunts hire killers to kill three of them. You know what I mean? And it's like this cycle of retributive violence that just runs out of control. And it's like totally understood. It's like people are grieving it, but they're like, yeah, of course, now he's going to kill you because you did this to him. Um, and so there, there was kind of this out of control violence happening in ancient cultures where there wasn't a sense of the punishment fitting the crime. And so Lex Talionis did some good work. God worked in that time, in that place, as he always does, accommodating to their understandings of justice and injustice to work for more justness with eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. What happens is, though, in our day, we take that as like legitimizing violence. <laughs> like it was restricting violence back then when it was commanded. And now we see as like, oh, I have warrant now <laughs> to, like, to like do these things, which is kind of the opposite of how we think it was intended. But Jesus does something kind of incredible to this Lex Talionis in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you may quibble with my language I'm going to use here, but I don't really know how to say it, and I want to say it starkly. So permit me to overspeak. Jesus says, you've heard it said, this, Lex Talionis. But I say, that's wrong. <laughs> I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And if somebody steals something from you, give them more. And if they punch you, right? And I, you know, there's interpretations here that uh, would say that Jesus isn't exactly only saying this, but give them the other cheek as well. And so, Jesus seems to not, Jesus seems to take this ethic that the Old Testament moved forward from this cycle of retributive killing to Lex Talionis, and he seems to move it even farther towards God's love. That's one, I think that's one way to describe what Jesus is doing. It's the one I'm most persuaded by. So Jesus is overturning, again, strong words, retributive justice at the heart of the Old Testament law and replacing it with the enemy love of restorative justice. And we see him command this and embody this and teach this his entire ministry. And then Romans 12 is uh, the implications of that ethic. Where, where Paul um, connects that explicitly to the life of the community. Um, and, and the loving of non-enemies, then, uh, this move from retribution to, to sort of uh, loving restoration, he says to do this so that you may be children of your Father who are in heaven. So this is the, this is the essence of who God is. One more story about this. There's that scene, and I, again, I shouldn't think with my mouth because... I don't always have the addresses. But there's that scene when uh, 
He's walking with the apostles and they want to call down fire from heaven. Mm -hmm. Remember this? Mm -hmm. And, and he says, uh, you don't know of what spirit that is. That's crazy because Elijah did that. Right. So we see Elijah like, and he's heralded in the story as like, this is God's holy fire smiting the infidel. The apostles operating in this understanding are like, hey, we should do that Elijah thing. And Jesus rebukes them and says, you don't know what spirit you have. Now, whatever Jesus is doing, friends, he is radically reframing what justice and love look like in the heart of God. Now, if we want to say clarifying, we can't. I want to say he's extending and expanding the revelation of who God is in much of the same ways that it would be unfathomable not to sacrifice your firstborn on top of a hill to the God who's called you. You you mean you don't want child sacrifice? Like that would have been mind-blowing to Abraham. Just as mind-blowing to the disciples and apostles was uh, there's something even better than retributive justice. So the reason why I think it's a biblical move is what I'm saying. God reveals himself progressively and we get a clearer and clearer picture that finds us tell us in Jesus. So we're just barely scratching the surface here. (laughs) Yeah, because, well. We're barely scratching the surface here. Any other thoughts or questions, friends, responses to that? Haven't even talked about Hades and Gehenna yet. <laughs> uh, real quick, the, the, what Jesus mostly is referring to when, he's, when it's used, so the King James Version, Here's a quick sort of like history lesson. The King James Version took the words Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus and translated them all as hell. Thank you, King James. Uh, They're not all the same thing. And we associate them with like these inferno kind of images of hell. And I think it's done a disservice to how we even read scripture. So just for instance, when Jesus uses the word Gehenna, which he usually uses when he's describing a place, it's an actual valley outside of Jerusalem, Ben Hinnom. I think that's it. Um, and it's, and if you, if you remember the Jeremiah reading, um, I barely do, so you probably don't. Uh, part of the judgment Jeremiah was uh, delivering to Israel was for the sins done in Ben-Hinnom. This, is, this was a place outside of Jerusalem where altars were built to Molech and Baal, where Israelites sacrificed their own kids. And so it became a symbol and imagery 
of like the epitome of darkness and godlessness, of idolatry, of evil. So when Jesus uses the phrase Gehenna, he's not describing some uh, far off place of um, that, you know, that we get like weird sort of like fantastical sort of images from. He's talking about a symbol and a metaphor that encapsulates the worst of death and destruction and God's judgment all bound up in this awful act, this awful place, and this place of desolation and destruction. Now, there's also this tradition, and I hesitate to mention it because I'm not sure it's true, that this valley uh, was such a um, unredeemed, awful place, was a, still a place of darkness in Jesus's day, that the only thing it was used for outside of Jerusalem in Jesus's day was a trash heap. Because it was so desecrated by these sins. <laughs> that... Um, that basically trash was dumped there and you, you didn't bury trash, you burned it. So there was a fire constantly burning in this valley, burning trash, which is mostly refuse and carcasses. And so when Jesus talks about the fires of Gehenna, he's talking about an image of evil, destruction, desecration, decay. And usually what he's saying is, <laughs> if you don't repent, Jerusalem is going to end up like that valley. And it does. <laughs> like in AD 70, it does. Everything's lit on fire. Bodies are burning and dying. People are eating each other. It's awful. Jesus is saying that awful place that Israel of old was judged because they did awful things there that is now, this is possible, maybe always burning. That's going to be this city. It's an image of, of judgment, ancient and present, ancient and future judgment. That's just one example of, of like how Jesus is drawing upon imagery from Jeremiah and present day to describe in time judgment that's coming upon Jerusalem in Matthew 24, the chapter before we preached on today. But because the King James Version translates it hell, we just assume he's talking about the end times. When he's talking about the Valley of Hinnom. And only if it's the Valley of Hinnom can we then work from there and say, does this have anything to do with the final judgment? That's another question. And that may have something to do with the final judgment. Just like Jeremiah's picture of, of death and destruction, Jesus used to talk about AD 70. We may be able to, able to use Jesus' AD 70 imagery to talk about this. But we have to actually honor what it's for rather than misinterpret it. So, again, there's tons of work like that we could continue to do. But that's probably enough for tonight. <laughs> Everybody, your head spinning? Is it enough to think about? 
All right. I've got, a, there's a couple books that I, I found really, really helpful. Let me just mention them now. Okay. Uh, one of them is cross vision. I just gave that to uh, melody. It's a really good book. Highly recommend that book. Uh, Greg Boyd isn't just brilliant, but he's an actually really good dude. Uh, which isn't this, the more scholars you meet, the more you're like, don't ever be a pastor to church. Just stay. Okay. So yeah. So cross vision is a, is a condensation of that book, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, which blew my socks off. Here's another book that lays out these options that I've described about the afterlife really well and honors all the texts that seem to indicate they're true and goes into Old Testament background. It's really good, really readable. It's a book called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, Hope, Hell, and the New Jerusalem. Her gates will never be shut. Hope, hell, and the New Jerusalem. And Andrea, that book is written by that guy you listened to on the podcast, Brad Jerzak. The guy who wrote A More Christ-Like God? That's the same guy. Okay, I'm starting his book. Yeah, it's the same guy. He, He was an evangelical... Uh, Baptist and a Mennonite, and now he's an Eastern Orthodox guy, but he's a really generous uh, theologian, brilliant, careful, and a better dude than he is a theologian even. Um, Will you repeat the book that started out with the word cross? I will put them both in the group me thread that we had tonight. That way you've got them written down somewhere. uh, Okay. Just as follow-up reading. And, um, you know, I guess where I am friends is that I'm, I'm agnostic about what actually everything looks like other than being hopeful that God's love is the strongest thing in the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean that what we think of it, what we think about what happens at the end uh, has implications for God's character and the God we worship. So it is yes, an important, it com- it's an important conversation, even if, even if I'm uncomfortable being dogmatic about it's a, it's annihilation and nothing else. I just will never get there. I, I confess the creeds, but, but then what we, what we presume, this is why I think me being a hopeful inclusionist in the sense I was describing uh, allows me to live with the most faith, hope and love uh, towards everyone. And, uh, you know, if I'm going to be judged on love, then I'm going to go with that. (laughs) I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek. All right, uh, everybody, we've only got a few of these classes left. I really appreciate your engagement. Uh, If it stirs up more questions for you, let's hear it. Let's continue to talk about it. I deeply appreciate a church where we can have these conversations and you contribute such wonderful questions and also thoughts. So thanks for, thanks for this. It's been awesome. And we'll see you, um, some of you see you Thursday, some of you see you Sunday. Okay. Peace, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night. Bye-bye.